Good to see you. Good, good to see you. Grab your Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the fifth chapter. I want to say hi to all you folks who are joining us online. I hope you got a Bible handy as well. As you know, we're making our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And as we gather together this weekend, we begin one of the really, really great passages in Matthew, and that's the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that passage, great passage of Scripture. Let me ask you a question as we begin. When's the last time you heard a really great sermon? Somebody say last week. <laughs> well, listen, I, I can't even, I tried to think, I can't even imagine how many sermons I've heard over the last, you know, uh, 50 plus years of my life, and some of them have really, really been great sermons. In fact, I remember the very best sermon I ever heard preached. It was preached by John MacArthur from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It's all about the power of God's Word, and it was so deeply convicting. I heard it when I was a young man and it really shaped my perspective on preaching, uh, that, and I've carried that with me even to this day. But here's the deal. Uh, we're going to begin and spend the next several weeks looking at one of the greatest sermons ever preached, ever taught as Jesus in a very simple and straightforward way, and the Sermon on the Mount does two things. First of all, he's going to expose the hypocrisy and legalism of first century religion. That's what happens, first of all, with the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to expose the hypocrisy and the legalism of first century religion. And when I say religion, I'm talking about having a perspective that your relationship with God is based solely on following rules and rituals where your heart is just simply not involved. It's just going through the motions. It's all about rules and rituals. It's all about the things that you do externally. And Jesus is going to expose over and over and over again, beginning this, with this morning, He's going to expose the hypocrisy of that and the legalism of that, the emptiness of that. When I decided uh, several uh, months ago I was going to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, I outlined the book for myself, just for my own personal benefit, so I would kind of understand how it unfolds. And so, like for the first four chapters that we just completed, I just called that Jesus the Messiah. To me, that was all about, you know, presenting Jesus as the Messiah or introducing Jesus as the Messiah. And when I got to the Sermon on the Mount, where we are right now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I'm calling this section of Scripture, Just Say No to Religion. Because what we're going to see is Jesus giving us teaching that basically says, just say no to the emptiness of just going through the motions when it comes to God without the involvement of the heart. Now, the second thing this sermon is going to do is it's going to give us a true picture of what a righteous life is supposed to look like. And the word righteous just means right or right with God. And it all begins with this passage of Scripture known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about what it takes, what's required to live a blessed life. So, if you got your Bibles open there to Matthew 5, let's not waste any more time. Stand with me like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word. We even like you to stand uh, wherever you might be joining us at home. And uh, you follow along. If you're a guest, we do this every week. We just put a big emphasis on the public reading of Scripture. You follow along. I'm going to read the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. We're just going to talk about a very short part, but we're going to read each week as we go through this part of the study, we're going to read the entire passage. And I'm going to use the word blessed. I don't think it's wrong to say blessed, but I didn't get dressed to come to church this morning, so 
I'm just going to say the word blessed, all right? Here we go. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Look up at the screen for a moment. That's a picture of the Sea of Galilee from the top of the Mount of Beatitudes that was taken in 2014 on our trip to the Holy Land. Uh, There's a beautiful, beautiful church built on the Mount of Beatitudes that uh, I don't have time to show you, but gives you a little bit of an idea. If you could just imagine the electrical wires being gone, what it might have looked like. Uh, for Jesus and the people on the mountainside. And I'm going back to the Holy Land uh, in October and love to have you join me. All right, here we go. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated, and we always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. I'm going to approach I'm going to approach this part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, with a very simple outline that we're just going to use every week, but we're going to expand every week. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one this first thing as we begin this message. God promises happiness that's real. Write that down. God promises happiness that's real. Because Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by telling us it's possible for us to live a happy life because God, listen to me, because God wants us to be happy. Now, in order for that to make sense, and everybody look up here for a moment, I'll be the first one to say that that on the surface, that sounds very shallow and superficial. It really does. To just say, Jesus promises a happy life because God wants us to live happy lives. That sounds very shallow and superficial. But what we need to do in order to get past that is we have to understand the right definition of the happiness we're talking about, and that comes when we understand the meaning of this word blessed that Jesus uses nine separate times throughout the Beatitudes. That, in the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word makarios. We'll put it up there on the screen, makarios. And while it's translated blessed in most of our Bibles, over the years, the most common English word that's used to try to capture the meaning of this word makarios, or this idea of being blessed, is the word happy. Although the truth is, in all honesty, that falls short of capturing the depth of the word, the real depth of the word. I say that because this word makarios, this word blessed, this idea of being happy that we're talking about is a description of a deep level of inner contentment that is not affected by outward circumstances. It's a deep level of inner contentment that's not affected by the circumstances of life. And so when Jesus in the Beatitudes, for example, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are the meek, he's saying, these are the qualities that lead to a life that's marked by a level of satisfaction and peace that is so real and so deep that no matter what happens, it cannot be shaken. And the result of that, friends, I think we'd all have to agree, the result of that is happiness. Now, having said that, having 
having given you that definition of what we're talking about, let me just say two things real quickly. First, I just want to reiterate, this is the kind of life that Jesus wants for all of us. I'm going to say it again, even though, again, it sounds on the surface shallow and superficial, I'm going to say it. Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants me to be happy. He wants us to experience happy lives. But remember, we're not talking about happiness in a shallow and a superficial way. We're talking about something that is much, much deeper and much, much more real than that. The second is this. This happy life, this blessed life, this makarios life that Jesus is describing here is a life that the world does not offer. The world does not offer this. And let me try to explain that by, uh, by uh, doing something that we've done before when we've talked about joy, because joy and happiness are very much the same thing in many ways. Now, in the past, and many of you will remember this because this is the only thing you ever remember about my preaching. Any of, many of you remember that there was a time when I really tried to describe the difference between worldly joy and what we might call biblical joy or, or Christian joy. And I defined it for you like this. I said, worldly joy is a feeling based on a feeling, while Christian joy or biblical joy is a feeling based on a fact or facts. And that's the real big difference. And so worldly joy is something that we have when we feel good, when the circumstances of life make us feel good. But when the circumstances of life don't make us feel good, when they change and they don't make us feel good, we lose that joy. Biblical joy, Christian joy, is a feeling based on a fact. Regardless of what the circumstances are around us, regardless of how we might feel in the moment, deep down inside, we still feel joy. Well, you can describe the happiness, you can define the happiness that Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes in the same way. So happiness, what Jesus is talking about here, this makarios blessed happiness he's talking about, there's a worldly aspect of it, there's a worldly aspect of happiness, and it's feeling based on a feeling, but there is a Christian happiness, there's a biblical happiness, what we're talking about in the Beatitudes, and that's a feeling based on a fact. Let's say after church today, you decide you want to go to your favorite restaurant, and you came to 10 o'clock service strategically because you knew it was going to get you out in time to beat all the Methodists and all the Baptists and all those other people that are going to go to that same restaurant. And you've been thinking about it. You even know what you're going to order. And so you get there, and you walk in, and you think, sweet, there's a lot of empty tables, so we're not going to have any trouble being seated at all. So you go up to the host, and you say, there's, there's four of us. And they say, okay, well, have a seat, and we'll call you in a minute. And so you sit down. And then you're waiting and you're waiting and waiting and you think, well, what's going on? I'm just looking. I see all these empty tables. You know, you feel happy because you walk in and there's empty tables. You're happy because you know you're going to be seated, but then you're just waiting. And you, so you say, what's going on to the host? You say, you say, we got empty tables. He says, yeah, we got empty tables, but we don't have any servers to work those tables. And so now you don't feel happy anymore. Okay. Empty tables, great happiness, no servers, no happiness. And that's the difference. That's the difference. Okay. That's what, that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about this happiness Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. And it's a happiness that the world doesn't offer because the happiness of the world, just like the joy of the world, is based on feelings, on feeling good. But we're talking about something based on the realities that are much deeper than that. I won't deny that the world offers different levels of happiness, but again, it's always a happiness based on a feeling that can be here one moment and can be gone the next. But Jesus is promising something much more real than that. And this is the happiness that he wants for us. All right, write down next to number two. The second thing I want you to see 
as we begin this is real happiness comes in unexpected ways. And that's really the important truth that we need to see all throughout the Beatitudes. Real happiness comes in unexpected ways. And here's a hint. You can see it there in parentheses. It's all about attitude. See, the one thing we need to understand right from the beginning is that what Jesus tells us here in the Beatitudes with regard to the source of real happiness is the exact opposite of what most people think, and in that way, it's unexpected. Most people, and this was certainly true of the world that Jesus ministered to, it was certainly true of the religious world that Jesus ministered to, most people believe that living a a blessed life or a happy life is the result of our actions. It's the result of what we do externally. But what Jesus is telling us is that it's not the result of our actions, it's not the result of anything external, it's the result of our attitudes. It's not about what you do, it's not about what's happening around you on the outside, it's about how you feel, it's about the convictions and the beliefs that you have on the inside. And as Jesus begins to describe, or list rather, the uh, attitudes that we need to lead to the kind of happiness that we've talked about, He begins by saying, In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, let's try to understand what that means just by asking a series of questions. Write these questions down. There's going to be three of them. I think that they'll help us to understand this on the level that we need to. The first question that I wrote down in my notes is this, why did Jesus begin with the poor in spirit? Why did he begin there? And that's an important question because I want you to understand something. This, the Sermon on the Mount, beyond just being a great, great teaching, is really significant because it's the first important teaching that Jesus gives in the New Testament. This is Jesus' very first recorded message. And so everything about it is important, including the way you begin. And so the question is, why does Jesus begin with blessed are the poor in spirit? And the answer is really simple. Being poor in spirit, this is what we need to understand. Being poor in spirit is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian life because this is where having a right relationship with God begins, which means this is where real happiness begins. It begins by being poor in spirit because that's what opens the door to a right relationship with God. Now, you see that when you understand what it really means to be poor in spirit. So write this down in your notes. To be poor in spirit means to be humble because you have the correct estimate of yourself. To be poor in spirit means to be humble because you have the correct estimate of yourself. I'm going to put a verse of Scripture up on the screen from Romans chapter 12. It's verse 3, and I want you to look at it with me. In fact, I want you to read it with me. Let me hear your voices. Let's do this together. Here we go. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. Great advice, right? Everyone say right. And we can make all kinds of spirit-led applications to this, to this reality of how important it is to not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But let me tell you what this looks like from the very, very beginning. It, It looks like being poor in spirit. That's how this idea of not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought begins. It begins by being poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit does not mean false humility. 
Poor in spirit does not mean that you don't have any backbone, that you let people just walk all over you. Poor in spirit is not about you saying, I'm not worth anything or I can't do anything. And being poor in spirit, listen to me close here, being poor in spirit does not have one single thing to do with being poor in a financial or a material sense, even though some Christians want to spiritualize it that way. It does not have anything to do with finances or material things. Being poor in spirit, listen, Being poor in spirit means that you recognize on your own, based solely on your own merit, based solely on what you have to offer to God, that you are spiritually bankrupt and without hope. That when you come to God and you bring to Him everything that you have, even the absolute best that you are, the truth is you are spiritually bankrupt and without hope. Now, let me give you the single greatest illustration of what that looks like that we can find anywhere. And fortunately for us, it's found in the Bible. Hold your place in Matthew chapter 5, and let me hear pages turning. I want to hear your pages turning to the right as you make your way to Luke chapter 18. Let me hear pages turning. If you've got your cell phone or mobile device, make the, make the sound of a page turning. So, I just want to know you're going there. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. We've talked about it before. This is a parable Jesus tells. It's very brief. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, everybody look up here for a moment. A Pharisee would be somebody who would be the height of a religious person in Jesus' day. I mean, the absolute pinnacle. If you looked up a religious person in the dictionary in Jesus' day, it would have pointed to a Pharisee, all right? In contrast, there's a tax collector who was a sinner in Jesus' day, just viewed as a sinner. In fact, how many times do we read in the Scriptures that talks about Jesus uh, rubbing shoulders with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, tax collectors were viewed as being so bad that they had to have their whole, their own personal category. You couldn't just let tax collectors fall under the umbrella of sinners. They were so much worse than that that it was tax collectors and sinners, all right? So that's who we're talking about here. And Jesus says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' commentary. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, talking about the tax collector, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that's the story. I want you to pay close attention to how it begins. Jesus said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable, or rather Luke wrote those words. Now notice the phrase, their own righteousness. Luke says to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Jesus is talking about a sense that you are somehow good enough on your own when it comes to having a relationship with God, that you have somehow earned or deserved by your goodness, by your merit, a right relationship with God. But here's the truth of the Scripture. No one is good enough on their own. No one. Not you. Not me. Not the most moral person you know. Not the most upright person you know. Not the most faithful person you know. No matter how much goodness we may have, no one on their own based solely on their merit, 
is good enough to have a right relationship with God. Now, the religious world that Jesus came into, and that's, we're going to see that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, was in particular a place where people thought they were right with God based on their own merit, but no one is. And realizing that, realizing that you're not good enough on your own is the equivalent to being poor in spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You see that in particular here in this contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Notice how the Pharisee prays. He begins his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And he ends his prayer by saying, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was that prayer about? It was about himself, wasn't it? In contrast, the tax collector who stood at a distance would not even allow himself to look up to heaven and beat his breast said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who's that prayer about? That prayer is all about God. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not describing the Pharisee, he's describing the tax collector. Write this down in your notes. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes the reality of their spiritual condition and cries out to God for mercy. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes the reality of their spiritual condition and cries out to God for mercy. Now, that teaching didn't play very well with people in Jesus' day, and it doesn't play well with a lot of people today because we're not conditioned to see ourselves in such negative terms. But Jesus says the first step toward real happiness is the recognition that spiritually speaking, you're a beggar. Spiritually speaking, I am a beggar. Literally. Listen, literally. The word Jesus uses for poor here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word patokos. And you can see the definition on the screen here. It means to cower and cringe like a beggar, like a beggar. It describes someone who is begging out of shame because they literally have no other resource for their well-being. We have no other resource for our spiritual well-being than to come to God acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy and asking Him like a beggar to give us His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Now, that doesn't, again, that doesn't go over well oftentimes in the American culture that we live in. It doesn't sound appealing. But we're going to see all throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is so intent on giving His hearers a new level of, of spiritual life, a new kind of spiritual life, that He uses strong words and strong examples to teach us. And so He begins by saying, if you want to be right with God, you've got to be poor in spirit, which is to say, you've got to recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt on your own, and you've got to come to God like a beggar, pleading for his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Everything, when it comes to our relationship with God and being right with him, everything begins with brokenness, with our brokenness. The brokenness that comes when we realize that the very best we have to offer is not good enough to make us right with God. See, the single greatest obstacle to anybody having a right relationship with God is pride. And pride manifests itself by putting our confidence in our own personal achievement, our own personal morality, our own personal goodness. But that is not what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying all of those things, no matter how good they might be, again, they are not good enough. And that's why Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what? Oftentimes, when I talk to somebody on a personal level 
about what you need to know and what you need to do in order to make sure your life is right with God. Another way to say it, was, it would be when I share the gospel with somebody, I use this little illustration. It's not new with me, and you've probably heard it before. I will say something like this. Just suppose, well, I'm talking about uh, our inability to be right with God on our own. I say, just suppose you took all the people in the United States of America, and you lined them up on the coast of California, and you gave this instruction, swim to Hawaii. Here's the question, who could do it? Well, the answer, everyone say no one, no one. It's 2,500 miles, roughly 2,500 miles from the coast of California to the Hawaiian Islands. Now, do you know what the world record is for somebody as far as distance swimming is? It's about 140 miles, which just seems incredible to me that somebody could swim 140 miles. But let's just say on this particular day that you've got some really Olympic-trained type swimmers, you know, Michael Phelps-type swimmers, and you've got somebody who swims 300 miles. As, that's tw- that's, that's twice, more than twice what anybody's ever swam before, 300 miles. That's incredible. But you know what? They'd still come up woefully short, right? You say, you have an average person like me, and I can swim 300 yards. And after, after about 300 yards, I'm going to start feeling it right here. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I'm going to have this stabbing pain right here. <sighs> and I'm, <sighs> I'm going to be hyperventilating in the water because I'm sucking wind so bad, Okay just trying to keep my head above water. But it wouldn't matter whether it was 300 miles or 300 yards. None of us would make it. We'd all be completely helpless and hopeless. Well, the story goes on to say, just imagine in that setting that a cruise ship comes up and a captain gets on a loudspeaker, this giant cruise ship, and he says, free trip to Hawaii for everyone. And, that, and so we ask the question, who's going to be saved from the water? You know what the answer is? Only the people who admit that they can't make it on their own. That's it. It's that simple. Now, can you imagine how foolish it would be for somebody, whether you were 300 miles down the, uh, on the way or 300 yards, how, how foolish it would be for somebody who, who was just trying to keep their head above water to think, no, thanks, I think I'm getting my second win. I think I can make it on my own. But that's exactly the way it is for people who think somehow that you can be right with God. You, you're okay. You're good with God because somehow on your own, you're good enough. You're not. I'm not. No one is. And that is the heart of what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of, of heaven. Now listen, that's what it means. And this is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian life, so this is where Jesus begins. Let me ask another question. What's the benefit of being poor in spirit? Well, that might sound like a foolish question because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. So the simple answer would be heaven. But as significant as heaven is, I want to go to heaven to you. I mean, we all want to go to heaven. As significant as heaven is, Jesus is talking about so much more than just heaven from a future perspective. Notice that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say theirs will, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He says theirs is, like it's something that you experience right now. Now, here's how I think we understand that. We understand that uh, by knowing that we're talking about something, Jesus is talking about something that's not just future, but something that he's offering us in the present. Let me explain it like this. If you've read your New Testament uh, before, you probably noticed that you, there, you see two phrases used in there. You see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, and then you also encounter Jesus and other New Testament writers talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people want to go to great lengths to try to say that those are two different things, but I don't believe that's true. 
I don't believe that's true. If you want to get real specific, you, you read the phrase the kingdom of God 68 different times in the New Testament. It's found in 10 different New Testament books. You read the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 different times in the New Testament, and every one of them is found in the gospel of Matthew. But here's what it comes down to for me. Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. So how could they be talking about two different things? Let me give you one quick example. I don't want you to turn there. Matthew 19. Right after Jesus has the encounter with the rich young ruler, who Jesus says, you know, when he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And in the end, to cut to the chase, Jesus says, go sell all that you have, give your possessions to the poor. Uh, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. It says the rich young ruler went away sad because he was wealthy, had great wealth. Well, after he walked away, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 19, 23. Matthew 19, 24, Jesus continues to speak, and he says again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he uses both phrases in two sentences back to back because he's talking about the same thing. So when we understand Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we understand that the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God, then we understand that Jesus is not just talking about a blessing that's going to come in the future, he's talking about a blessing that's available to us right now. And we understand that from the perspective of the kingdom of God, then he's talking about, a, this, is, this is how I would describe the blessing. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is everything that God is right now Everything that God offers right now and everything that God is and everything that God offers in the future. Everything God is right now and everything God is for all eternity. Now, what's that mean practically speaking? That means he's promising us all the grace of God, all the love of God, all the peace of God, all the comfort of God, all the you fill in the blank. We have access to all of that right now. When you come to him like a spiritual beggar, acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy, and you ask him uh, for his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, and he pours that out in your life, and he changes your life, and he gives you a new relationship with him, a right relationship with him, you have access to all he is and all he offers both now and for all eternity. And that, friends, is why this happiness, this blessed life we're talking about is so significant, because when you have all of the grace of God and all all of the love of God and all of the mercy of God and all of the comfort of God and on and on and on, then it really doesn't matter what happens to you on the outside, deep down on the inside, you're going to be okay. You ever known anybody who walked through an incredibly difficult trial in their life or experienced an incredibly deep loss in their life? And yes, they were brokenhearted and yes, they felt a deep level of grief, but deep down inside, there was a stability in their life that allowed them to get through that difficult time that allowed them to wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day because we've got this blessed happiness inside of us that's based in the eternal nature and character of God, who he is, and it carries us and it sustains us. I've got one last question, and Brian can come. How do you become poor in spirit? I don't think it's complicated, friends. I've just gotten two things, I guess got two simple things written down in my notes, and this is how we'll end. I think, first of all, you become poor in spirit by remembering that we don't compare ourselves with other people, we compare ourselves to God. We compare ourselves to Jesus every day of our lives. We don't look at our lives based on how we match up with one another. We look at our lives in relation to God, to our Lord. 
we have the tendency to judge the quality or the depth or uh, whatever of our lives based on how we match up to each other. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm way better than that guy. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't sin near as much as that guy. I'm not pointing at anybody in particular when I say that, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes people say, they tell me after church and they say, when you said that, you were pointing right at me. And I'm thinking, well, the Holy Spirit's pointing right at you, but I'm not. And the Holy Spirit's way more important than me. But we don't compare ourselves to each other. We keep, we keep our, 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 our eyes on the reality of how our lives measure up to Christ, how our lives measure up to our Lord, to God. And that keeps the right perspective. And you know what the second thing we do is? The second thing we do is we pray. I wonder, listen to me, I wonder what our lives would be like if every one of us routinely at some point prayed the same prayer that that tax collector prayed in Luke 18. And we just got down on our face in front of God and we just said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, say those words with me this morning. God have mercy on me, a sinner. That keeps us poor in spirit. That reminds us of the reality of our lives and the greatness of God and His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Look at this verse on the screen from Psalm 34 and verse 18. Read it with me. Let me hear your voices. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's an Old Testament parallel passage to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to pray with me this morning.